Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I am editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org. This podcast is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the oldest and biggest Ukrainian media NGOs. What are the military options for Ukraine and Russia in the current situation? Is full-scale invasion a plausible scenario? Or should we prepare for a limited intervention and occupation of parts of Ukrainian territory? What provocations can be expected? We discuss these issues with Hans-Peter Mittun, independent analyst, retired officer of the Norwegian Armed Forces and former Norway's defense attaché in Ukraine. But before we start, let me remind you that you can support Ukraine World and our Explaining Ukraine podcast at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can see the link in the description. Hello, Hans-Peter. Thanks so much for joining this podcast. Good afternoon. I'm happy to join you. So we are continuing to discuss the current situation, the Russian military buildup and the risk of a full-fledged invasion. It's interesting that Russia denies plans of military intervention. We see it on on Russian media. We see it also by pro-Russian actors inside Ukraine, across the world. So do you think these denials, these uh, statements can be trusted? Yeah, well, I, I would say Russia does, does not have any credibility uh, anymore. Um, it's allegation that the West is threatening Russia and its security concerns paint a very different picture than what we have um, established in the West. The US is being blamed for staging color revolutions worldwide to destabilize Russia and its allies, its denial of being involved in the war in Donbass, and its claim of only being a meditator is, of course, ridiculous. Its denial of involvement in Skipal as an assassination attempt, its meddling in election referendums globally, its many cyber attacks, and so on and so on. It has undermined any credibility Russia at one stage did have. But it's also worthwhile being in mind the Russian strategy, uh, because that's a big, big part of, this, of your question, I would say. Um, we are involved in what I would call a, a global hybrid war. Uh, and the main battle space occur inside the cognitive space of populations, key decision and policy makers, making them, and not the military, the main target of the ongoing operation. Um, and it's, it's worth being in mind that the strategy exploits the protest potential of the population of both the nation and their sort, in this case, Ukraine, and that of its partner nations. It manipulates and reinforces existing vulnerabilities trying to ignite social instability. There's a lot to be said about this, but I think the Russian aim is to confuse and manipulate both the international audience as well as its domestic population. Using disinformation, cyber attacks, blackmail, provocations, fabrications, military exceptions, and other active measures, it creates a virtual reality that prompts not only its victims, but also their partners into making the political decisions Russia wants without suspecting they're being manipulated. So in essence, lies are a crucial part of its present strategy. So no... They cannot be trusted. 
Well, when you look in the at the military situation, and let's let's talk about the different military options. Seeing these images circulated in the information space about the concentration of Russian troops, do you think they are being prepared prepared for a real war? Um, I, myself, I do not, uh, I, and one of the reasons for that is. After eight years of following Ukraine and the, the, the evolving conflict, I, I reached the conclusion that until today, at least, um, they follow a, a hybrid war strategy. That being said, we can never rule out our, our military um, invasion because that it will always be a, an option for the military side. We, and with that I mean Ukraine, NATO, the European Union, intelligence services, analysts, media, everyone has been discussing possible scenarios since 2014. I we still remember the first time the Ukrainian armed forces presented us with their sort of perception of what might come in the years to come. Well, that happened already in the end of 14. That said, most of them, most of those analysis follow the same lines of thoughts. Generally, they are limited to one, a full-scale invasion scenario, seen as less likely by most, I suspect. The second being the occupation of anything east of Dnieper, which is possible, but not the most likely scenario either. Uh, and thirdly, a, a land corridor along the Sea of Azov. Potentially as, as far as to Transnistria, both to ensure water supply to Crimea as well as cut Ukraine's access to the sea. It's a possible scenario. There are, of course, a number of variations to the three alternatives, including maritime amphibious operations to support all three options. But they're mostly descriptive of the three main directives, I would say. But where th this is where I start having problems with the, the argument, because most of the scenarios have one common problem. None of them discuss the military options adjusted to or, or adapted to the Russian present strategy. Few see the scenario in connection with the Russia, Russia's past operations, its disinformation campaign, its diplomatic initiatives, or its legislative uh, processes. So the, the, the bigger picture sort of paints a different uh, picture than a, a, a full-scale invasion or even a partly invasion of Ukraine. I, I would argue, if, if I may, that the present hybrid war strategy was chosen for several, for several reasons, many of which make a full-scale invasion and an occupation of Ukraine highly unlikely. Not because it cannot be done, because it can. I think that's recognised broadly also within the Ukraine community, but because it's not needed. It's counterproductive for its long-term goals and it's costly and not at least extremely ris risky. Uh, one reason for this is there's a lot of reasons, and, but some of the main points I would say, firstly, Russia needs a huge force to both invade and occupy Ukraine. The latter will be the most demanding mission, the occupation. More importantly, it needs to, needs to multiply the numbers by factor two to three um, to sustain operations over time. 
An occupation force can only be maintained through this cycle of first a period of operations, followed by a period of rest, and lastly followed by another period of training exercises in the preparation for the next operational deployment. So they need sort of, for every battalion, you need two more in, in the back end. Secondly, if Russia becomes clogged down by the more than, I would think, 500,000 Ukrainian partisans fighting in the rear, its armed forces will become committed to an occupation of Ukraine. This will increase the security risk elsewhere. But more importantly, Russia runs the risk of the initial success turning into a strategic failure, more or less in, you know, comparable to what happened in Afghanistan. And with that, Russia would lose any hope for global power status it might have. Thirdly, it's also worth reminding ourselves that nations do not wage war for the war's sake, but in pursuance of the policy in which a better state of peace is the main objective. Hence, it, it is essential to conduct war with constant regard to the peace one desire. What do Russia ex desire from Ukraine? Well, I would say a full-scale invasion is in direct conflict with its long-term strategy. Russia needs Ukraine to become a great power. It is facing vast demographic challenges. It needs Ukraine's defense industry. It needs a self-sustained Ukraine capable of taking care of its own population. It needs a well-functioning agricultural industry. It needs to secure a well-functioning country. A full-scale war is therefore extremely counterproductive. Fourthly, I would also point out that if Russia were to attack Ukraine, this Nord Stream 2 project would stop cold. Um, and since the pipeline is not yet operational, any conventional war fighting in Ukraine is bound to damage the existing Ukrainian gas transmission system. The loss of energy security will force Europe to intervene actively. They can not, no longer sit idle and, and watch. And lastly, a full-scale inv invasion will inevitably trigger the international community, which until now has done its uttermost to avoid being drawn into war as an active part. After the last weeks of diplomatic efforts, the United States and NATO will either be forced to respond or stay forever irrelevant. The consequences and spillover effects of a full-scale war will be utterly unacceptable to Europe. NATO will, be, will have a conventional war at its border in conflict with its strategic concept, triggering a massive migration crisis and destabilizing the continent. A full-scale invasion will trigger a new Cold War and an arms race, bringing the Russian economy under siege. Now, that's sad. Uh, you know, having gone public in, in December when forcing the issue, show, demonstrating to the world that this is not a war about, against Ukraine only. This is a, a, a wider um, strategy aiming to, to uh, establish the blocks we saw during the Cold War. Um, we, Russia is faced with a, a lot of the dilemmas, and they have to pick a scenario which 
supports the, the, the passion strategy, which is avoid uh, having the West intervene in the conflict as active parts. So in my mind, I still hold, as I've written a number of articles about, I still hold the humanitarian intervention as highly likely. They need to do something. They cannot have, have said and done all the things they've done in the last six months and not act when they do not achieve the um, concessions they are aiming for. The, the presence of peacekeepers supported by a new fly zone and possibly a maritime embargo will, in my mind, fundamentally change the security situation. A, a, a humanitarian intervention will put regular for, Russian forces on the ground and in the air ready to punish the Ukrainian armed forces for any provocations orchestrated by the Russian armed forces. This will have a huge psychological impact on Ukraine, of course. But even more so since the West will find it very difficult to sanction Russia for adhering to what we call the responsibility to protect norm. It is one and very same norm we have used and argued as the basis for our own interventions operations like in Kosovo or Libya, even though Russia in this case has created the pretext for the operation. Um, so far, I would say the most indicators of warnings support this scenario. Uh, both the narratives of humanitarian crisis and Ukrainian atrocities, the need for intervention in the bus, um, Ukraine's accusation of Ukraine assaulting the fundamental human rights and freedoms, everything sort of built up under a Donbass scenario in my mind. Uh, yes. I, I, so, you, yeah, you think, you think most probably that uh, they will try to legitimize their power over the occupied territories. They can introduce peacekeepers on the demarcation line. They can... Uh, for example, um, accept the independence of these so-called republics or maybe even annex them eventually. Um, is that what you're saying? Or, or they will try also to to dig farther into Ukrainian territory? For example, you mentioned this scenario around the Azov Sea and expanding the you know their land possessions around Mariupol and maybe farther to the south of Ukraine to connect Russia to Crimea by land. I, I think they, first of all, I, I, I would argue that the passion strategy, it, it works. I mean, until now, it has had uh, an effect on Ukraine uh, uh, and the, the international community. The, it's a long-term and it's slow-moving strategy, which um, they will be able to change the timeline by, by doing a humanitarian intervention. The, the beauty of it, if I might sort of... Um, it's never muted, but if if you look on a military side, it would mean that they continue doing something openly, which they today denies doing. So they don't need to to uh, take more territory to create effect. Because when you go go back to some of the essence of the hybrid war, um, Donbass was never uh, the objective of, of the uh, aggressions in 2014. The reason they stopped in 2014 was they did not need more than that part of the territory to help destabilize Ukraine from within. And that truth remains the same today. 
But by intervening humanitarily, or for justifi- justified by humanitarian intervention, they will put a different footprint in the, that part, and they will have a, a supremacy in air, and they will have the ability to have massive, provide uh, uh, dam- massive damage to Ukraine armed forces along the front line, in any provocations, even if it's orchestrated by Russia. Uh, in, in such, they will be able to continue what they did in 14 and parts of 15, start pushing Ukraine armed forces back, not to take territory, but create the, the instability it, it's been seeking for the last eight years. What are Ukraine's military options in this case? In which case Ukraine would be able to contain aggression? Ah, uh, this this is a this is a complex question, isn't it? In one side, we should argue that Ukraine armed forces is very different from what it was in two thousand and fourteen. The land forces is totally different and has a much more higher fighting capability than it had in fourteen. Tremendous, much more, but. Most of its critical vulnerabilities remain the same, though. Um, they, they do not, Ukraine do still not have a navy. Its air force has not been modified, and a lot of its equipment is is, is old uh, and uh, low tech, if you like. Uh, uh, either way, both are inferior, greatly inferior to the capacity of the Russian uh, forces. That said, I think we need to have two thoughts in your head. Firstly, we have to have a short term and we have to have a long term. Um, and, and thinking long term, I think both long term and short term, I'd say first we have to start with the West, um, or South, to put, put myself in that, that shoes. Um, Albert Einstein has once said that insanity is doing the same things over and over again and expecting different results. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, after eight years of conflict, have the West at any point done anything or acted in any way that has surprised or, or worried Russia? I, I would argue that we are not. For us to succeed, we need to change behavior. Because we have um, acted according to the same script we use during most international crises. We make statements of concern. We call for dialogue and political solution, and of course, sanctions of limited scope and flexibility, all of which has been a part of the Russian cost-benefit analysis before they even started the conflict. So again, we need to change our behavior. And there are a couple of facts and truths, uh, facts and truths that remains uh, constant. One of the universal truths is civis uh, passam parabellum, or the Latin for if you want peace, prepare for war, which is a core of deterrence. So we need to make sure that the cost of a possible attack, which, we can, which can help prevent Russia from escalating its ongoing war. That means, firstly, we need to continue helping Ukraine develop a strong, balanced armed forces. They do, Ukraine do not, however, have the funds needed to achieve this objective for decades. The European Union and the United States of America, therefore, need to provide Ukraine with a Marshall Plan. In the present situation, however, this will not change anything within the next five, ten years, 
So it's a long-term requirement. The reality of the of today is that Ukraine will fight with what it has, not what it would like to have. Um, in, in the article, How to Make Russia Invasion of Ukraine Prohibitively Expensive, uh, the former Minister of Defense, Andrei Sagonyuk, argues that Ukraine and the country's partners should seek asymmetric answers for the, the, to the formidable military challenges posed by Putin's Russia. If Putin launches a full-scale operation, Russia forces will face a combined Ukraine military of around 500,000 personnel, including a considerable reserve continent. contingent. While there is no time to supply Ukraine with the complex weapon systems, there is a shopping list of items that could significantly raise the cost of a Russian invasion. The most expensive items of Ukraine's short-term wish list includes portable air defense systems, anti-tank missiles, missiles, anti-ship missiles, and counter-battery raiders. Drones of all kinds would be most welcome. Sniper rifles, anti-sniper equipment would also be extremely useful, as long as large, as would large deliveries of night vision goggles, encrypted radio communication devices, and satellite communication devices. Anything which can be delivered quickly and make a change today and not tomorrow. But then, of course, <laughs> there is also a question about what we, the West, need to do. I, I talked about the change of behavior. Uh, 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 and Albert Einstein, the, the, his, uh, his definition of madness. There is one additional truth, and that is Newton's third law, which is called the law of action and reaction, because it describes the direct connection between force and counterforce. Or to put it another way, every action triggers a reaction. I'm sorry to say that the West response to Russia's war in Ukraine violates Newton's third law. A reaction has not only been weak, but also predictable. We do not want the conflict. We, do not, we don't want to become a party to it. We want a political solution to the war, which of course Russia started to win. We hope for peace as we, again, in conflict with established principles, prepare for peace. We don't prepare for war. So, in essence, I would say for this, it's not sufficient only for Ukraine or support Ukraine. The West needs to, to stand its ground as well. We need to draw its red lines, which brings military options back on the table, which means also need that NATO needs to start acting as a military alliance again. We need to be prepared to establish a military fait accompli on the ground, making sure Russia will be facing the very same dilemmas we are facing today. This could be, uh, and given the invitation only, of course, we could be stationing NATO forces in Ukraine, making the cost of attacking Ukraine so much higher if they choose to go for the full-scale uh, scenario. The West is discussing primarily economic measures like sanctions, harsh sanctions, sanctions you haven't seen before, etc., ex excluding switching off from SWIFT, uh, ban of Nord Stream 2, etc. Do you think that this is the when even when Americans are discussing 18 different scenarios, do you think they're still discussing only economic measures and these military measures are not in the minds of Western leaders? 
I think we have, if they are, at least they are making a huge mistake because they have publicly stated several times over and over again that the military option is off the table. Because we, we tend to forget that military diplomacy is an important part of any armed forces. We wouldn't deploy units to create war. We would deploy them and forward post them in order to avoid it. The main purpose for my whole professional life has been to deter aggressions. Because if deterrence fails and we end up in a conflict, it doesn't matter actually who wins the conflict because we are all lost in the first place. So I would say if they were considering um, military options, they, they needed to be signaled. Without signaling, we risk, run the risk of misinterpreting each other and, and misunderstandings and increasing the risk of a broader conflict than, than we have today. We don't see any um, heightened readiness. We have not seen deployments of forces from the, uh, from the United States to Europe. We do not see uh, additional movements of troops closer to the borders of Russia or Ukraine or Belarus. We don't see any signaling. Uh, and therefore, I don't believe at the moment military options are on the table. Um, it's interesting that Russian media are saying that, look, NATO is bringing forces to Ukraine, is approaching our borders, they are uh, willing to attack, they are escalating, etc. While the reality that you are describing is, this, is, is that it is uh, absolutely not the case, right? This, is, um, this goes straight back to the first question that the main tool of the, uh, the, the campaign is the lies. There is no NATO threat. And I'm, I, think, uh, the, uh, the, um, I think the horrific lie, the biggest lie of all this information is the lie that NATO is a, imposed a, threat, is a threat to Russia. I mean, first of all, it is a, a defensive alliance. It has Article 5, which is focused on the, uh, the uh, collective defense and defense only. Russia knows this. We have been working closely with Russia since, since the end of the Cold War. They've been invited close as a special partner to NATO. They know exactly what NATO is. As Additionally, as we are sort of discussing how to defend ourselves against the Russian hybrid war, and we see the reluctance in, in Europe to recognize the threat in the present time of their day, you know, when we struggle to, to come to grip with how to defend ourselves, how can we even imagine 30 democratic liberal nations posing a threat to, to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to Russia? It, it's impossible to consider. But then it's also worth pointing out an extremely good article or analysis by an, a Russian analyst, uh, Dmitry Nekrasov, who asked, the rhetorical question, how many times did the Western countries try to take over Russia? We have never done that. I mean, through the modern history, there's been several instances where Russia or the Soviet Union has been laying with a broken back lately in the 90s. And instead of using that opportunities, we were NATO and the West were concerned about preserving Russia as a as nation. Avoid the chaos which would follow a, a, a Russian 
disintegrating. So history, our strategy, our policy, everything goes counter to the narrative of Russia. But then again, as I said, the lie is crucial to its present aggressive foreign policy. There is not a chance that <laughs> that uh, or, or, that NATO poses a threat to uh, to uh, to uh, Russia. Let me come back to the military options that you have already discussed. Uh, what provocations can be expected? Uh, there are there is some talk about this false flag operations. We're talking about the possible, you know, provocation around chemical uh, weapons, etc. What else can you expect? Well, we have to bear in mind that one of the reasons I'm, I'm sort of um, I remain probably fixated on this humanitarian intervention scenario is um, from the starting point when. Um, we all refer to Gerasimov, Daniel Gerasimov's uh, uh, sort of a doctrine, uh, this brilliant analysis he did in 2013 about what we, the West, had done. And out from that, deriving from this general description of the hybrid war or face zone tactics or whatever we like to call them. But if we stop up and, and, and look at the operations we did that particular decade, that involves all humanitarian intervention, all with the design involving peacekeepers, uh, the no-fire zone, all with the, the, uh, the uh, most of them with the maritime embargo involved. Well, we look at that, and then you look at what has happened in Russia since, where they have changed their doctrine, they changed the strategy, they adapted the, all the military documents to adapt to this reality. All the legislative uh, documents, laws, has been adjusted to meet this um, responsibility to protect. And then we have seen they start a war in Ukraine, building basically a humanitarian crisis in Donbass, um, and helping having uh, the international community help them convey the picture that is a dire humanitarian situation in Donbass. Well, then you only have to have a trigger, of course. Um, they need to justify taking this last step. You might have to remember that it's a couple of years ago, Russia even went as far as to suggest for the United Nations that we should set up a peacekeeping force. So even, you know, they've done all the preparatory work diplomatically, legally, as well as the military doctrinal for that preparation. So what can we see? Well, it would be a, a massive loss of life, obviously. If it's an explosion, a chemical attack, a military attack on against civilian infrastructure, poisoning water supply, it does not really matter. Russia will construct this scenario witnessed by Russian media. There will be media present, and they will present this as as a Ukraine-induced terror or whatever kind. So, so I think actually the imagination is, is only the limitations to what can happen. There will be a false flag. There will be maybe more false flag operations, I'm sure. Uh, Russia is conducting exercises in Belarus. We see that Ukraine is kind of encircled from the east, from the south, from Crimea, from the north Russian territory, but also Belarus can be involved. So do you see that Belarus, Lukashenko's Belarus, can be one more platform of invasion? It, it, Yes, but in, in many ways. It all depends, firstly, of 
if you believe in an invasion scenario, which I sort of hold like less likely. But it doesn't actually matter because it goes directly to the hybrid war concept again. Let, let, let me point out a very important fact, which is lost to most of the international community. That is, this so-called escalation or buildup of forces along the border in, in Belarus or Crimea, in Ukraine itself, Donbass, this is not things sudden. This is a part of a process which has been ongoing for more than eight years already. And in the whole process, the pressure on Ukraine has been increasing. I think we need to see that in this context. We must remember that the mine is the real battle space. The, the, the force built in, in Belarus, along the borders of Ukraine, in Crimea, in Donbass, all help build a credible threat to Ukraine. It creates uh, multiple dilemmas and therefore ties down Ukrainian forces in the West and Central Ukraine. It has the same function in the sense as the amphibious capabilities and the consequential threats from the south. It helps reduce the risk of an humanitarian intervention in the bus, reducing both the cost and risk of the operation, if that is indeed its real intentions. It, the military presence in itself also helps create fear and ensure interaction. It helps reinforce the overall pressure on both Ukraine and the West. So yes, it, whereas it can be moved, it could be maneuvered and used should that be called for? I think the main purpose of the forces in Belarus, as elsewhere, is to put pressure and build this, this um, uh, uh, credible threat, re reinforcing the, the pressure on, on both the population, the key decision and policy makers in Ukraine and the West. Thank you so much, Hans-Peter. Thank you for this comprehensive picture. We see really that... Uh, you know the battleground is not only the, the the military battleground but also the battleground in the minds of people uh, the psychology collective psychology uh, but thank you for describing these uh, different scenarios so uh, we had hans peter mitsun who is retired officer of the norwegian armed force uh, forces and military uh, former military attaché in ukraine and independent analyst Thank you so much, Volodymyr. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org. This podcast is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the oldest and biggest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support Ukraine World and our Explaining Ukraine podcast at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can see the link in the description. Subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Google Podcast, Apple or Patreon. Follow us on social networks, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube and stay with us.